G'day everyone and welcome to the Doctor Who Show Presents. Today I'm particularly excited to have someone on the show for two reasons. The first is he's going to talk about a really interesting topic. And the second is he's already one of the contributors to the show. He appears on the TARDIS Library episodes reviewing Big Finish Audio. It's Mike Solko. Hello, Mike. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, look, my my pleasure. And I think we can now exclusively reveal the uh, reason for you being on the show is you've recently been to a Doctor Who convention in the U.S., Yes, I have. Um, just a little over a week ago, I was at the Gallifrey One convention in Los Angeles, right next to the airport there. Uh, it's the biggest convention to take place for Doctor Who in the United States. And uh, I, I can say safely, it's the best. You're not biased at all. <laughs> no, no. And there's good, there's lots of good conventions. So it's, it's just this one is the uh, the high bar. This is the one everybody should aspire to. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in, Gallifrey One, or Galley, as people affectionately call it, uh, for a number of reasons. One is it is so big. I mean, it, it's nothing like Australian conventions, chalk and cheese, nothing like. It's even quite a bit bigger than most of the UK conventions. And I mean, we're talking about the country where the show comes from, where all the actors live. It outdoes even that. So it's quite an extraordinary convention, I believe. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is you hear like with the UK conventions, there's not really as many people who do like the cosplay stuff, things like that. They're very interactive. They're very into it. But it seems like the cosplay thing is much bigger over here. And maybe there's a different sort of enthusiasm for the show here. So, yeah. And I, I think Gallifrey hits uh, this year was 3,800 attendees. So, right. again, you know, when you can when you compare that with some of the big comic conventions, that's a drop in the bucket. But for a, a convention focused on one specific topic, that's pretty significant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's been going for many years now. And I guess my first question I want to ask is how many galleys have you been to? Uh, the sad thing is only three. This was my third year and I live within two hours of the convention center. So uh, it, it took me a really long time to start attending. And I and I regret that. But when you say only three, I'm sure there won't be much sympathy for people out there who have never been to one and would love to go to one. And you're like, oh, yeah, only three. Oh, yeah. Yeah, only three. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. Um, you know, it was it was one of those things that I didn't really have any Doctor Who friends up until the last couple of years. Uh, you know, it was it was one of those things that was very spread out. And you might have had like Outpost Gallifrey or Gallifrey Base now, things like that, or even Rec Arts Doctor Who way back in the day. Oh, I remember uh, but, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I suppose there, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's just, but it was one of those things that it all felt distant from me. It didn't feel like something that was approachable to me. Um, and even kind of going to something Dave re mentioned on the recent episode of the flagship show, um, you know, he talked about how podcasts now are really, in a lot of ways, one of the main methods of people engaging in fandom. And I, I really see that because podcasts is what drew me in and made me feel like this is a community I want to be a part of. Yeah, I, I look at other interests I have in life, and often you need that sort of way in. You sort of need to know someone, or at least feel that you know someone. And perhaps by knowing podcasting people, people sort of have this sort of way into a community, you know, because they listen to someone talk every week or every month or whatever, and they feel they know that person. And, and maybe going to conventions, it's nice if you know someone there. And, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Or am I just rambling? Is it too early in the morning for me? That's, that, no, it's absolutely true. Um, I'm, I'm a very introverted, shy person at work. I can flip a switch and I can be extroverted. I can go all day. But uh, when it comes to social functions, it can be really scary sometimes. Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. Um, you know, a lot of people have problems approaching people, things like that. So that first year is where I finally just buckled down and decided, you know, it had been the 50th anniversary. I was very excited about the show. And I basically set out to, I'm going to make some friends or talk to people, but one way or another, I'm going to engage it. And even though I didn't really know any of the podcasters at that point, just by listening to their show, it gave me a feeling of safety mm. or a feeling of this is something I can engage in and, and feel okay with. Um, because a lot of the big comic conventions, uh, you know, I used to go to San Diego 15, 20 years ago and uh, for the big Comic Con. And, you know, even then it was only 50,000 people as opposed to 150. Only. <laughs> but, yeah, only. But but it, there wasn't really much time for personal interaction. You were just from one queue to another. You might go into a giant panel, but it, there wasn't anything personal about it. And I think that's what kind of scared me off from trying some of these smaller conventions for so long. And now I'm at a point where I would go to a smaller convention any day before a large convention. Wow. So you, you went into your first galley not really knowing anyone. Um, how did you break the ice with people when you were walking around? <laughs> well, I was actually in the, the opening introductory panel. I saw a guy with a wrestling T-shirt, a pro wrestling T-shirt in front of me. 
and I kind of cracked a joke about it and, and we got to talking. Uh, his name is John from the Podcastica podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, we'd only talked for maybe 10, 15 minutes that day, but we started following each other on Twitter and, you know, we were tweeting at each other through the convention. I don't think that first year we even bumped into each other again. Uh, but that was kind of my first road in, you know, within the first half hour of the con, I realized, hey, just just strike up a conversation. You know, if you see somebody kind of sitting there and they're not up to something, um, you know, you've always got at least one thing in common with somebody there, which is Doctor Who. Mm. Maybe not the right doctors or whatever, but, you know, you still you have that in common. Do you think cosplay helps as well? Because, you know, people are dressed up, you can say, oh, look, that's a great cosplay. Or can I have a photo? And while you're having the photo, you get talking. I'm just imagining these things in my head. <laughs> it can. Um, some cosplayers are very open and they want to talk. Some are just kind of like, okay, there's your picture. Bye. Um, mm. The cosplay community is a very odd beast. And that would probably be a whole different topic. Um, because even though I, I've dressed up as the seventh doctor in my first year, I dressed up as uh, the Knight of the doctor, eighth doctor costume. I don't really consider myself like a full on cosplayer. Mm. It's something I enjoy doing, but it's not like it's not my scene. Uh, but but it is a way, though, is if you see somebody dressed up in the Seventh Doctor costume, it's a way you can strike, a, strike up a conversation about, you know, uh, how did you find the pants? Because tartan pants are not easy to come across. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, just just stuff like that is you have that common ground. My favorite costume I've seen is uh, somebody dresses up as the Monoptera from uh, the Web Planet. Oh, wow. That's dedication. It is. It's a black and white costume. It's it's kind of furry and it's just it's amazing. And I, every year I have to just like wave at that person and just remind them that is my favorite costume. And by this point, they're probably like, OK, creeper, go away. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that is certainly something that that also gives you an inroad is that, you know, as if you see a doctor you appreciate, you can you can chat with them and just, you know, talk about that particular character. And, uh, you know, if you see somebody dressed as a doctor you don't like, you just kind of make a beeline in the other direction, however it goes. <laughs> Yeah, and and just going back a, a moment ago, the cosplay community is it can be quite an interesting beast. I pre- that's the best way to put it. Uh, my, <laughs> my my wife is American. She has two younger siblings who are twins, and they're both into cosplay. One is really into it, and one's not so into it. And the one who's not so into it is often, you know, criticizing the community for things they do and people seeking cosplay fame and all of this. We won't go into any of this on on this episode, but just to to mention to people out there that, yeah, the deeper you go into cosplay, it can be quite interesting, shall we say. Yeah, and and my advice to anybody is uh, if you're going to a convention or an event and you want to dress up as a character you love, go for it. Just have fun. Don't worry about what other people think. You're going to have people who embrace it. And you're going to have some people who are very particular about it and very kind of, I'll just say snobby about, you know, mm. oh, that's not screen accurate or this or that. You know, there's people who spend thousands of dollars on one costume. And, you know, if that's what you want to do, if that's your hobby, go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't come down on the people, you know, don't be a gatekeeper for the people who don't spend thousands of dollars on a costume either. Yeah. You, you don't make yourself look better by putting other people down, for example. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. So that's very true. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a shame if they're twins because they could do a twin dilemma cosplay. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if they were both into it, um, I, I, I've seen it happen before. So it, it's at least one person at some point in time has done this, I guess, or two people. Oh, look, and if they did, it would be a whole reversing of sex thing because they're girls. So, uh, you know, that's quite popular in cosplay, too, at the moment. I see a lot of female doctors out there of the uh, classic doctors. Absolutely. Uh, some of my best friends, uh, they do. Uh, sometimes we hear it called gender swap or things like that. Um, but the way they look at it is they're not being the female doctor, or this or that, whatever. They're just being the doctor. And I think that's fantastic. See, I'm learning here. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, was it hard getting tickets to this year's or past year's galleys? I, I often see on forums and stuff, people like stressing, like, oh, my God, it's coming up. Will I get a ticket? Is it, is it really hard to get tickets? Well, from what I understand is recently as a few years back, you could walk up the day of the convention and buy a pass. Um, when I first attended in 2015, um, I, I was kind of on the fence about it still. I wasn't sure if I was up for it or if I wanted to go. But I just decided, you know what, buy the ticket. They allow ticket transfers later. So if I don't go, I don't go. And uh, so I bought my ticket within an hour of it going on sale. And it sold out with, I think, in eight to ten hours. So wow. I was very happy. You know, it's, I made the right choice. Um, last year they had a massive issue where the server crashed and somehow I got my order in within the first minute right before the server crashed. So me and about 50 other people were able to get tickets. After that, you actually had to email them at a specific address, like at 12, 12 PM specifically on the next day. 
um, and they would queue you up and then you had 12 hours to buy your tickets. So a lot of people got shut out last year and it was really kind of an ugly situation. Um, and that's not a criticism of the convention. It's just that the server they had at that time for the ticket sales couldn't handle it. This year they'd used a new server. Everything went really smoothly. And I think as long as you were within about 30 to 45 minutes of tickets on sale, you could buy them. And there's people transferring their tickets up until the day of the convention. Mm. So even if you don't officially get tickets, you can still get tickets at the at the regular price. They don't allow people to scalp them, anything like that. So um, it's you've got to be on the ball, but it's not like a high-stress situation. Okay, well, that's good to hear. But it certainly does sell out, is important for people to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I believe this year, I want to say it's Saturday, April 8th. I don't have it in front of me, um, but they're going to do it on a Saturday, which is nice as well, because most people have that day off work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's much better than, you know, trying to (laughs) sneak on a work computer and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. All righty. Now, aside from, I guess, being a Whovian in general and having done it in past years, was there anything in particular that attracted you to to be going along this year? Any particular guests or panels or anything like that or friends you wanted to see? Yeah, it's interesting because they sell out before they even announce a single guest most years. So it's it's actually the brand name of Gallifrey one that, that's selling out before people even know. But as soon as they announced Lala Ward was going to be a guest, I mean, that was just that was everything. They, they, that could have been the only guest and I still would have been happy. Um, when I was first getting into Doctor Who, Romana 2 was on screen. And I think I liked her better than the Doctor at that point. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, just very exciting. In fact, I when I met her this last weekend, I told her, you know, you were my favorite Doctor. So What did she say to that? <laughs> oh, she was just, oh, well, thank you very, you know, it was, it was very just, you know, courteous, quick. You know, it wasn't like an extended thing. But she was just like, well, thank you. That's really nice to hear. So, oh. um yeah, just a quick engagement. But, you know, I didn't tell her Sylvester was now my favorite doctor, but uh, <laughs> just left it at that. But, yeah, so so Lala Ward being there was exciting. Um, I, I've been to three or four other conventions within the last couple of years. So I've seen a lot of the guests at this point who tend to show up. Uh, so there was a few others like Palm again was really the headliner. And I had a chance to meet him in Long Island this last year. So still exciting to see him. Um, Dominic Glenn was there who did a lot of the music for the sixth doctor, seventh doctor eras. Uh, that was one that was really exciting and, uh, like kind of on a, I don't want to say smaller scale, but it is, you know, maybe not as big of a name of guest as, uh, Barnaby Edwards from big finishes there. He directs quite a few of the fifth doctor plays. Um, he's written a few as well. And he also is a, one of the people who plays the Daleks on screen and TV. So I was looking forward to that. And I almost forgot Philip Hinchcliffe was a guest. Uh, <gasps> that yeah. would be my favorite. Yeah. And really, if there's one person I can point to is the person who got me into Doctor Who. It was his novelization of Seeds of Death or sorry, Seeds of Doom. Got it. Got to get it right. Seeds of Doom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was I was on a family vacation and I'd seen the show a couple times on Saturday mornings and it was just something I knew existed. But I saw this creepy looking book cover and I'm like, I'm going to try this. Uh, so over this family vacation, I read the book. And from there on out, I wanted to read everything I could see everything I could. Um, so knowing that I would get a chance to get that autographed was really important to me. Yeah. Look, going back in my mind, you know, some people are very specific with Doctor Who. You'll say, what's your first Doctor Who? They'll say it was 1972 and it was episode three of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, geez, how do you know that? You know, cause I only have vague memories, you know, going back into the seventies, but what I do remember, it was obviously the Baker era and it was the Gothic type stuff that I was first seeing and sort of first started registering with me. So I'd say Hinchcliffe got me into Who as well, uh, not through a novel, but through the actual TV output. Yeah. And that was some of the episodes I've, that were really at the end of my watching history. Um, I, you know, as far as making it through all the past doctors, things like that. It's only within the last couple of years I've really seen a few of those classics like Brain of Morbius, Pyramids of Mars, things like that. The ones that fans really hold up high. Um, you know, I, I'm just getting to those and they they are as great as they've been said. Well, that's what I was going to ask, you know, coming to them as as an adult, having seen a lot of other Doctor Who, how, how do they come across and they come across well? Yeah, I, I think that I think that they're really strong. Um, I think that they're intelligent, but they they still have that all ages feel to them for the most part, even though they're creepy um, to where I could see an eight year old or a 10 year old being really into them. And that's something that I always think is really important as well. Yeah, it's interesting. There are scenes like uh, in Brain of Morbius, the guy getting shot in the guts. And, you know, his, his guts exploding and blood and stuff. And you think that would not be in modern Doctor Who at all. And yet back then it was perfectly OK for kids. <laughs> <laughs> sure. It was it was a very different time. Uh, Mary Whitehouse wasn't pleased. But, you know, what can you do? Yeah. So, can't, uh, can't please everyone. 
for sure. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so I mean, uh, knowing, knowing that he was going to be, there was a big draw. Um, Paul Cornell has been there every year I've been there and, uh, I've, I've talked with him every year, but that's one that still really means a lot to me as well. Absolutely. And of course, news at the moment is the, uh, the third Doctor comic that Paul's recently written that I've been reviewing on the, uh, the library episodes we do. That's going to be his last Doctor Who output, maybe forever, at least for some time. He, he really wants to concentrate on non-Doctor Who stuff going forward. Yeah, and it's it's even a little further. It's not just non-Doctor Who stuff. He wants to focus on stuff he he owns himself, uh, his own created works. So, like, I know he did an episode of the TV show Elementary last year. Um, he's done a few TV shows here and there over the last few years. And, and he kind of said that he, he wants to step away from that because even though he could have a lucrative career doing that for the rest of his life, he wants to be able to really focus on the things that mean something to him and that he can point to as his own legacy. And that's not to knock the the other works he's done. You know, he's not saying he doesn't like Doctor Who or he doesn't think he's contributed. Just he wants to be able to bring forth those original ideas of his own. That's right. I mean, I don't want to put words to his mouth, but I'm sure he's quite appreciative of, of Doctor Who because he was essentially writing fan fiction before he got his Virgin New Adventures gig and then wrote a ton of those and then just got into writing comic books, eventually TV you know, and he's had this wonderful career. So I'm sure he'll always feel very warmly towards Doctor Who, but I can I can quite understand him wanting to, to do original stuff. Yeah. One of the things that's really fantastic about Paul at any convention is he takes part in panels uh, and not panels about his own work. He'll be talking about just something from the history of Doctor Who. He led a it was a panel called uh, Changing Critical Perspectives. And he was looking at the way that fans and, and academics would actually engage the show throughout the decades um, so that was very interesting because a lot of pre-internet criticism is drastically different from what we see online nowadays because, you know, we can watch an episode of the show or even just a trailer for an episode of the show and go and post a full review before it's even finished airing. Mm. So, you know, uh, as opposed to before where you had to have fanzines or novel or books or things like that. So, um, so yeah, he definitely still has a tremendous love for this show. I, I got to attend, uh, one of the things that's neat about Galley is they have what they call coffee clutches which are basically these little coffee talks and you have to sign up for them really early on the first day. Um, and they'll have various guests who sit with you for about an hour in this room with 12 people and you just get to have a, like a little intimate chat with them. Oh, so, wow. uh, yeah, so it was, uh, I got in to see Paul Cornell and Christopher Jones and, uh, with the two of them, I, you know, they talk quite a bit about the third doctor comic, just so the comic work in general, we got to hear about Paul's upcoming work and it was kind of neat to hear because he's actually had the idea for the big bad in this third Doctor comic for 20 years. <laughs> and, and this was just the first time that somebody really gave him an opportunity to uh, to do it. So uh, it was kind of nice for a swan song. And I haven't seen issue five, the final issue, but apparently the doctor gives a speech at the end, which really also can serve as a, a going away speech for Paul. Oh, that, that's interesting to know because I've, I've got it here, uh, Titan sends us electronic versions. Uh, I haven't even opened it because uh, I'm, I'm waiting till we get our next TARDIS library together. But that's really interesting to know. I will read that now knowing that. that that's awesome to know. Yeah, it's definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, I think the series has been tremendous so far. And apparently Christopher Jones has another project which is not Doctor Who, but it's Doctor Who related. And that's going to be coming out. Uh, Tony Lee is the writer and that'll be coming out sometime in early 2018. So another thing from Titan to look forward to. Oh, fantastic. They're, they're kicking so many goals. And just apropos of nothing, they're about to do a Robotech series. I'm so excited about that. I had not heard that. That's that's going to be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. They're going to do a Robotech series. And, of course, the Robotech live-action movie's coming. But, of course, this isn't a Robotech podcast, so I won't wax <laughs> lyrical about that. But I'm so excited. Yeah. If you start on that, I might go in on Riverdale and we'll be here all night. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you've you had uh, your coffee clutch there. You, you saw Lala Ward and got to say some words to her. What other uh, personalities did you get to see or hear them talk or get a photo with? Um, let's see. Of course, meeting Philip Hinchcliffe was very brief. He was very busy, but uh, it was nice to talk to him. Um, I got to meet Nicholas Briggs, who's, of course, the voice of the Daleks and just about every other monster's. Uh, you know, he's Mr. Big Finish. So um, that was a lot of fun. And and again, I kind of mentioned Bar Barnaby Edwards earlier, who's a director. Um, it's kind of funny to to hear he actually got his start. Uh, if you remember, there was a documentary called 30 Years in the TARDIS. I do. Yeah, it came out, I guess it would have been in 1993. He and a friend, I think it was Nicholas Pegg, got hired because they needed somebody who was relatively short who could operate a Dalek. Uh, so... <laughs> 
yeah, so Gary Russell uh, knew the two of them from drama school, whatever, and hooked them up. And uh, so they got their start there. And then later on, when the new series came back, apparently somebody at the BBC was just trying to find, is there anybody alive who played a Dalek in the past? They found those guys and they reached out to him and said, hey, do you want to come back and play Daleks again? It's amazing what a what a small industry it can be in the UK when things like that happen, or like when the Big Finish guys were making wacky audios back in the 80s, and next thing they get the official license and they're making real audios, and it's like... Oh, yeah, you know, I, I remember all that stuff, like The Stranger, uh, the Air Zone Solution, you know, the, the video ones. Uh, it's it, At that time, it seemed like that was the best we were ever going to have again, you know, uh, just these, these unauthorized fan productions. And now here we are, you know, 20, 30 years later, and all of a sudden it's like, we not only do we have the show, back but we have you know hundreds and hundreds of audio plays and books and all these things and just it's it's you know if you'd have told me this in 1994 i never would have believed you no that's right and even speaking of those weird spin-offs uh, they've recently put out obverse books i think have just put out a book about that whole era sort of you know going in and, and doing all new interviews with all the people involved like bill bags and you know everyone who was into that stuff and i think that could be a really interesting book to read too because that's that's a really interesting period of the show for me, the wilderness years in general. And maybe for people who weren't even there at the time or a fan of Doctor Who at the time, going back and looking at things that were done, you might be really interested. Like, a lot of it is terrible, you know, truly <laughs> terrible stuff. But it's interesting, you know, uh, oh, and it's historical. I mean, absolutely. There's there's people who really love the Probe series. And uh, uh, my, fr- my friend Nicole, who's on my podcast, and she does the Terminus podcast, she's a big fan of a lot of that stuff that um, I want to say, big, uh, what was it, BBV did, uh, the Bill Bags company. Um, yeah, she, she follows that, and I think she's even blogged on some of it. So, yeah, um, there's, there's people out there who really love that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I would be completely fascinated to read more of that because uh, there was some really good ones along the way. And there were some that were just, oh, goodness, what were they thinking? Um, <laughs> I, I know there was the uh, the softcore Zygon movie, which just, oh, goodness, that's infamous. I, I heard about that. And I just thought, what are they doing? <laughs> what? <laughs> I couldn't believe my ears, really, when I heard about it. it. It's one of those things where it's just how big could your target audience possibly be for this work? Uh, yeah. But yeah. but, you know, they, they they went for it. So there you go. But <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, even even speaking about the wilderness years, uh, there's there's a dealer who has uh, quite a few of the new adventure novels, uh, some of the eighth doctor novels, all that stuff. He's there at the Gallifrey Convention every year. And this year I was actually actually able to pick up uh, nine of the virgin books for thirty dollars. Um, oh. Yeah, there was uh, Nightshade was in there. Um Killing Ground, which is a Sixth Doctor uh, play, or sorry, Sixth Doctor book. Uh, that one was uh, three dollars, and that's one that uh, you know it's it's fifteen twenty dollars at least on eBay, if not forty or fifty. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, I think the only one I paid a little bit more than three dollars for was Eternity Weeps, which was fifteen. But that's that's still for that book. That's at a fantastic price. So I actually uh, another friend was this was his first year at Gallifrey. So when we walked in the dealer's room, I said that's where we're going first. Because he's another guy who uh, followed a lot of those years. So I told him, I'm like, you're going to want to hit this first before everybody else gets to it. Yeah, exactly right. Those books are becoming rarer and rarer. There, are, there have always been rare ones. Obviously, Lungbarrow's the uh, the classic poster boy for that, or maybe The Dying Days. But increasingly, some of the uh, more regular ones, if I can put them that way, are becoming more and more rare, more and more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we were tweeting back and forth about a couple of the books. Uh, I found one Lung Barrow for 125 I found The Dying Days for 75 which is actually a phenomenal price for that book. Uh, thankfully, Very I already had price. them. <laughs> but yeah, it's. Uh, it, but that's the thing is I think that even when you have ebook copies out there, people want to own the real thing. Yeah, books are a form of merchandise for people. And as more and more Who fans come on board, particularly in the U.S., um, where there's you know money to be spent, I think these prices are just going to go up and up because they're a fairly niche thing, those new adventures. You know, you, you see them as a, a novel in a bookshop and you think, oh, there's tons of them out there, but they weren't actually printed in huge numbers. No, I'd, I'd be really fascinated. I'm sure the numbers have to be out there for it, but I'd, I'd love to see what those numbers actually ranged from and if there were certain books that had bumps or if it was just pretty steady. Mm. Um, you know, uh, one of the guests also was uh, John Peel. Uh, who's written several Dalek novels as well as several nonfiction books. And he was even talking about earlier in the target range that if they did a Dalek story, the numbers would instantly double. So, yeah, uh, yeah they would they would just print through the roof and they could be guaranteed sales on those books as opposed to something like maybe The Smugglers, which is most likely <laughs> just going to sit on the shelf, unfortunately. 
Yes, but which now attracts a pretty penny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's, but that's the thing. Is now you can find any Dalek book you want, no problem. And uh, and then the the rarer books, yeah, not so much. Mm. Well, look, speaking of merchandise in general, did you buy uh, much merchandise at, at Galley besides the books? What did you get this year? It was very good this year. Uh, <laughs> I, I bought the books. Um, the There was a Ninth Doctor minifigure, kind of like the little Lego figures from Character Options. And I got that so I could complete. Now I have uh, 1 through 12 on that set. Um, but aside from that, um, I bought a few CDs from Dominic Glynn. Uh, and that's really the the amount of what I spent, aside from paying for some autographs. I, I really took it easy this year. Um, and there was there was some good merchandise around. Um, you know, a lot of the action figure stuff is there. Um, some people had some really neat prints, things like that. Um as far as nonfiction books, it seemed a little lighter than it has in the past. Like I know I was looking for J.R. Southall's book and uh, it wasn't there. But yeah, I, I, I took it pretty easy this year. It was it was a good year for my pocketbook. <laughs> was the uh, the the Glynn CDs you got uh, his remixes of the season twenty three theme that sort of stuff? Yeah, so he did a concert on the Friday night, and uh, it it was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. So the lights are dimmed down in the giant hall room they have, and you have maybe. 1500 people sitting in the audience no dance space whatsoever no real kind of audio visual to it and he's just up there kind of doing this crazy dj stuff spinning getting really into it and uh and so the the songs all start out kind of just like the tv show you know they're they're just atmospheric and then all of a sudden like these heavy beats drop in and it just becomes like this this rave song uh yeah he did um he did the mysterious planet one the the trial of the time lord um, I'm trying to think, I think one of the others was uh, survival, but then, uh, towards the end, he actually did the happiness patrol. Oh, wow. So, so you had these wacky Candyman sounds and you had the harmonica as well as dance beats. And, uh, it was, it was fantastic, but I was kind of even looking over at my friends. I was like, we don't have to stay if you don't want to stay. And they're like, no, no, this is interesting. Um, and we all enjoyed it, but it just felt so surreal to be everybody sitting perfectly still listening to crazy dance music. <laughs> <laughs> they they needed a dance floor for that one. Uh, so, yeah. But afterwards, I got to meet with him for a couple of minutes and he was letting me know that the Happiness Patrol one is going to be out later this summer. Uh, but I was able to pick up, uh, I think it's the Ravelox remixes, which is the season 23. And then uh, another one he did, which I haven't had a chance to check out yet. So and that was neat. Um, you know, it's I've always been a big fan of the background music, things like that. Um, I, I'd always be very curious if Kef McCullough ever shows up to a convention. So. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I've I've tried to be in touch with Kef because he lives in Australia now. Oh and, wow! Uh, yeah, yeah, and and does I think I'm I think I'm saying the right thing in that I think he might do like weddings and stuff. Like if you want someone to come along and play some music at a wedding, he'll come along and play. And uh, I tried getting in touch with him back when I had the Who Wars podcast to do an interview, and I just never got any response. So I don't know whether he just didn't get the email or whether he doesn't do podcasts or whatever. But uh, yeah, he's he's an Australian now, uh, Kef. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel bad for any woman I propose to in the future because now she's going to have to hear the Delta and the Bannerman score throughout our wedding. So it's going to be tough. <laughs> oh, dear. And and just on um, Dominic, back when uh, Capaldi's first season came out, uh, this is this is more for our listeners in general, uh, we did a review show and it was the, the one and only show I've never produced on this whole network. Uh, my friend Andy did it, and he got in touch with Dominic, and we used that theme music, um, one of those remixes, for the theme song to those those shows, which was quite fun. And we also did an interview with him as well. He's quite an interesting guy. So if you go digging back through our website, folks, type in Dominic Glim, you'll find uh, you'll find all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and I don't really. One thing I would say with the conventions is I I tend to stray more towards fan panels than I do towards the the panels with the actors. Um, it's interesting sometimes to hear the actors, but a lot of the time it gets bogged up in, you know, tell me about your past and a lot of that stuff, stuff you can already find elsewhere. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting if they do provide kind of theories on their work and things like that. But especially when you're looking at actors who were in the show in the sixties and even the seventies, you know, they, they don't always have the strongest reminiscences story by story, like the fans might want. Mm. Whereas, um, also like if you get to meet like writers or, or script editors, things like that they're more dialed in. They can more yeah. talk about those real kind of specific things that, that for me as a fan is what I like to dig into. But, but it was interesting. Like Lala Ward, um, she was just very, very, very witty, very sharp. 
Uh, poor Gary Russell got torn down several times during their interview, and and they're Aww. friends. They are <laughs> friends, so it was it was play it was playful and fun. But um, but yeah, just just hearing Lala talk about the series and how she really really enjoyed season seventeen, but was not enjoying season eighteen much at all. Mm. And really, she was actually about to approach John Nathan Turner at the same time he approached her, basically saying, "This isn't working. We're gonna have you move on." And so it just kind of worked harmoniously in that degree that they both kind of just agreed, shook hands, and that was that. She she felt that maybe uh, Adric was what people wanted to see rather than her. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was in jest. And yeah, she didn't have anything kind to say about Matthew Waterhouse. So uh, <laughs> I, I hope those two never come together at a convention. Oh dear, yeah, not many people do. Just uh, tying together a few things we've already covered in the podcast. One is Long Island Who uh, and Paul McGann. I was recently listening to a Big Finish podcast where they were at that show and uh, just tying into the fact that sometimes actors don't remember things they did 40 or 50 years ago. McGann couldn't remember which was his first Big Finish audio when he was talking to, uh, to Nick Briggs or even what year they had met. So... I think writers do tend to remember this stuff more because they're more involved with it, whereas actors sort of learn the lines, say them, and then move on. They sort of, uh, I guess, format the hard drive in their head and just <laughs> learn all new lines again. And, you know, 10 years, 20 years on, they're like, well, what was my first one? I have no idea, really. You know, and that's quite common yeah. for a lot of them. So, yeah, I get what you mean, that actors sometimes aren't the best for remembering things. <laughs> they might have a few tried and tested anecdotes that they trot out each and every time, but on the whole, they don't remember stuff like we do as fans. Yeah. Paul McGann was really fun. Uh, you know, it's it's crazy because from what I understand, if he gets a big finished script, he skims it once and then basically goes in the booth and just starts recording. And, wow. I, you know, and, and I'm a big fan and I know you've picked up a lot of his audios as well. It's just I, you listen to the sincerity of the character and I can't reconcile those two things. You know, it, it, in my mind, he's up late, you know, with a bottle of scotch in hand, reading the script over and over, just, you know, getting into the character. And, and it's not that at all. So, yeah, he doesn't want uh, to overthink it, I guess. Yeah, he he had a really funny uh, anecdote from when he was filming the Eighth Doctor film, uh, the TV movie from 1995. Um, apparently, he was on an elevator that more one of the mornings of the production about a week in and he was writing with Eric Roberts and Eric Roberts started complaining about that long haired Nancy boy such and such whatever talking about the doctor paul mcgann not realizing that the guy with the short hair in the elevator with him was the same guy just without the wig <laughs> oh that's that's good i like that yeah that was that was pretty phenomenal so uh, i might have to if i if i go to one of the conventions with eric roberts this year i might have to ask him that story uh yeah <laughs> but, he probably uh, tells it too <laughs> <laughs> could be could be but uh yeah paul was not impressed so you know and one of the neat things about going to conventions too is once you have friends there is is getting to see their reactions to things um i i didn't get to meet john leeson or they had the original canine prop there as well but one of my friends taylor was extremely excited that he got to get his picture with canine and john leeson uh, that was a big deal to him uh, my friend katie uh, is a massive eighth doctor fan so getting to watch her just jumping up and down after meeting him was just amazing so a lot of the time i think it becomes as much about the joy of your friends as it does your own joy yeah absolutely and and just talking about fans now on a, a slightly different tangent although we have sort of covered this as well the fan side of things seems very big at galley in terms of people getting up and and maybe even doing their own panels and talking to other fans and and maybe organizing like a cosplay get together and 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 whatever did you get involved with any of that either watching the panels or being on on them or anything like that um i went to several of the the fan panels um we we talked kind of before about the critical perspectives one which was was fan run um there was one i missed which i actually really wanted to go to which was about anxiety and con going um but there was a there was a diversity panel which was really informative and really worthwhile and then on sunday afternoon i always no matter which convention it is i end up in the death slot sunday around 3 p.m which is everybody's drunk hungover taking a nap um <laughs> just completely tired from the convention already sick uh, something yeah so uh but no it was it was a fun panel it was called um Oh, gosh, what was it tales that might have been. And oh. the, the whole thing was very kind of it was taking the history of Doctor Who and looking at things that might have happened differently and how that would have impacted the show. And of course, having done the Time Scoop draft podcast, I was all about that. Um, so I kind of some of the things I got to suggest were um, if Ray had been the companion rather than Ace in season 24. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a big one to me that would have drastically altered things, but still been positive. Oh, definitely. What if David Tennant had actually regenerated when he was shot by the Dalek? It would have surprised a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, we look at it, nobody knew that was coming. And then unfortunately, he just regenerated into himself. And that was kind of a letdown because they teased us with this massive change. Uh, so there was just a lot of talk about that. Um, one of the ongoing jokes about every panel throughout the weekend was the idea that every panel had to talk about who might be the new doctor. Of course. Um, yeah, you know, and it's one of those things that we've all speculated on and talked on and things like that. So, uh, you know, that that, of course, came up. But we, we also talked some about the idea of, of what kind of companions we'd like to see in the future. And for me, my two things is I'd like to see a, two companions in the TARDIS rather than one. Um, and I guess we're kind of getting that with Nardal, although, you know, we don't know how he's going to play out. But but um, just the idea that having two companions allows you to have different backgrounds. So so it doesn't have to be a white 20 something female from the UK, um, you know, is it, it's there's so much opportunity to go outside of that box. And I think it would be really excellent to see that. So um, that was a lot of fun. Um, it was also kind of interesting as well, because um, we had six people on the on the panel all were white males in their 30s or 40s. <laughs> and it just kind of uh, it was one of those things that that was I had to joke at the start of the panel is, you know, uh, what if this panel actually had diversity? Um, <laughs> you know, I, and, and that's not to criticize everybody had really strong points and things like that. But um, it, there was an interesting discussion with myself, the moderator and, and the Gallifrey One Twitter account actually got involved with it because we were kind of talking about how disappointing it was to see that in 2017. And one of the things they pointed out with these fan panels is they have to work with what they get. And in this case, they had 14 people apply to the panel, all male. And so, again, it's it's, you know, what are you going to do in that case? Well, you're still going to do the panel, but, you know, you're going to lose out on female voices, possibly lose out on some minority voices. And and uh, really seeing some of the diversity panels at this con and others is you realize how much that your own personal experience may not relate to someone else's. And, you know, and that's the neat thing about all of these fan panels is. You get to hear people like me who've lived through the wilderness years. You get to hear people who started watching two years ago. Occasionally, you get people who actually watched the Hartnell era while it was being broadcast. So, uh, mm. you know, but you get people from different countries, different ethnicities, uh, genders, things like that. And and it, it just really opens things up and challenges your own perspectives on Doctor Who. So, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. on that diversity thing, when it comes to podcasts, I mean, you look at the Doctor Who show here and we're mostly blokes. I mean, we've got Lex on board. But that's not through lack of trying. I mean, Kate, who used to do Who Wars with us, um, had the option to come over here but went off to do another Star Wars podcast instead. Uh, You know, through our experience of trying to get something together, that we almost might have had another female presenter on the show, but that just didn't work out. Uh, So it's not through lack of trying, and sometimes you do have to work with, with what you've got. So it is the other side of the coin sometimes, not because it's for any agenda or anything. It's just, it's just <laughs> oh, how it works out. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the really key things that's come out of it, um, Joy Piedmont, who's a contributor to Reality Bomb podcast and um, and participates in Who Fandom quite a bit on Twitter, is she's kind of said for her, it's her mission this year to get more voices engaged. And I think that's the big thing for anybody is is if you have friends who you think have something to say. And that's really true regardless of, you know, not to say female only or, or non-white only or whatever, but if you have friends who have something to participate in, something to contribute. When these conventions come around, really just encourage them to take part. Um, my first year, like I said, is I was terrified to even be at the convention. I'm going to I'm gonna tell a story here, and I've never shared this story except for one or two friends, but um, the first year I went to Gallifrey, I was about to get an autograph from Paul Cornell. I had to go in the bathroom, and I had to cry for 10 minutes because I was so overwhelmed with the fact that I was meeting this writer who had written so many of my favorite books. Human wow. nature is human nature is to me is the pinnacle of Doctor Who, the original the original book he did, yeah. um, you know, and I I'd, I'd never told him that part of the story or any time I've met him or whatever. But I just but that's how much it meant to me. It was just I can't believe I'm getting to meet this person. And I couldn't believe I was so overwhelmed that I really had to step aside for a few minutes and then come back. But the following year, I ended up being on a podcasting panel. And who's up there with me on the podcasting panel? But Paul Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? It was just kind of funny. It's it's this thing that you go within one year from being terrified to meet this celebrity to next thing you know, you're on a panel with them the next year. Mm. Um, and, and Gallifrey, I mean, they have usually five panels going at any given time. 
there'll be a big stage production, not production, but a big stage number where you've got, you know, like the, a lot of the big name guests, things like that being interviewed, or they might be showing an episode with uh, commentary, but then you get to these smaller rooms and that's where you have these fan panels and things like that. And, um, it's, it's where you really have a chance to meet people and interact and, and just learn new things about Doctor Who. So, um, you know, everybody has different things they attend for, but I would really encourage people, if you're going to a small convention or a Doctor Who convention, try to find these small panels if they sound interesting to you. And, and more than anything is, is apply to be a panelist. The worst thing they can say is no. So yeah. it's you'll be terrified before you go up there and then you'll have a blast by the time it's over. Exactly. And I mean, that's what I was going to ask about how you got on this panel. Did you apply for it or did someone ask you or maybe ask you to apply or how did that work what happens is they have um every year they they have a call for panel ideas and then about a month or month maybe two months later they'll put a call out for panelists and anyone can apply as long as they're attending the convention all you have to do is really say you know these are my credentials or this is why i would be a good fit for this particular panel this year I applied for three. Uh, the first one was the anxiety and, and convention going because obviously I cried in a bathroom before I met Paul Cornell. You had a great <laughs> anecdote. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, it's it's I didn't get to see the panel, unfortunately. and It was one I really wanted to be on, uh, but I, I didn't get on that one. Um, there was another one which was specifically about Target books. And mm. Target books were really important to me because I was reading them faster than I was getting to see t- uh, TV episodes. Yeah. Uh, so it was a big part of my formative years. But then, like, I looked at the panelists and it was big names, you know, like John Peel and people who like were actually associated with the series. And it's like, well, people want to hear them talk more than they want to hear me, perhaps. But then, you know, there was this third panel, which I applied to, which I was also interested in the tales of might have been. And I ended up on that one. So. Um, so, so most years I'll usually apply for three or four, get one or two and that's fine with me. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's just fun to be able to have that chance to talk. Do these get recorded in some way, the video or audio? Can people hear them after the convention? It depends on the convention. Uh, Gallifrey one has a very strict policy of no recording unless you've cleared it with them first. Uh, there's a couple of podcasts that have a couple of special uh, dispensations, things like that. And uh, but aside from them, like, you know, it's uh, say like Reality Bomb, who did a really funny show on Saturday night. Um, Radio Free Scarrow, of course, who's kind of the podcast of the convention. And uh, sometimes Verity will record as well. Uh, but really, like unless you're one of those really top name podcasts, it's probably not too likely. Um, now, if you go to Long Island, too, they're a little more liberal with it. Um, I did a time scoop panel there this last uh, November, but I just w- it, the room had really horrible acoustics and it just didn't work out on the recording. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, you know, apropos of nothing, because I've got no skin in the game. It, it'd be fascinating to hear this panel where you're talking about the, the shows that, you know, almost were, you know, I, I, I wish that had been if there was a, a mixing board, someone had recorded it and they put it out as a little podcast, maybe promoting their own convention. That'd, that'd be lovely. I'd, I'd love to have heard that. But uh, what a shame. What a shame. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things I, I appreciate. It kind of becomes the thing like, you know, where you don't want 100 people at a convention all holding their phone up rather than paying attention. But that's a little different because you have someone recording it separately. You know, it's it's its own thing. Um, and I get the idea that they want the, the Gallifrey experience to be unique to Gallifrey and actually being there. But but I agree with you. I think maybe after a certain statute of limitations, say like three months later, or six months later, you know, if, if they put more of that out, I think it would be positive yeah especially fan stuff i I understand the celebrities might have um be trouble to get clearance from and stuff like that but you know some fans sitting around talking stories it's it's interesting and it's yeah it'd be be great anyway i didn't mean to go down that rabbit hole (laughs) no no it's it's a great point though because there there might be rights issues with the celebrities absolutely but when you're not dealing with the celebrities not so much so Mm. yeah i agree completely uh, I had a question jotted down here, and you've you've sort of already answered it in terms of yes, you do go to other cons in the U.S. Um, so, what are other cons like in the U.S.? How do they rate to uh, against Galley? Well, it's um, going out a little broader from just Doctor Who. Um, you know, there's there's the larger what are usually called comic cons, even though they're really kind of genre cons or entertainment cons. And I try to avoid those for the most part because it kind of goes back to my earlier points with San Diego about how it's just spending a lot of time in a queue waiting for an autograph. And, you know, a lot of the time you're paying like $100 to get somebody's autograph, have maybe 10 seconds with them, and that's the entire experience. Mm. So uh, you just you don't really have that personal touch to it. Um, you know, even even here in town, it's we, interesting. We have what they call the Bakersfield Comic Con now, which I think was a joke that came up on the Big Bang Theory. And then all of a sudden there was really a convention. Um <laughs> 
but and it's it's a neat little two day thing and they maybe have like five or six thousand people show up for it over a couple days and but a lot of the guests are people from like say old shows like land of the lost things like that you know it, it might appeal to some people but it's not for me so I might go through, pick up a little bit of merchandise and, and head back. But on the other hand, like with the Doctor Who conventions, um, a lot of them seem to follow the format that you see with Gallifrey One, which is having the guests. You've got the photo opportunities. You have the autograph opportunities. And, uh, you know, then you'll also have kind of the fan panels as well as the large panels. Um, so uh, for me, when I look at those other conventions, I have to look at who the guests are really is my biggest draw at this point. Um, and I've really met most of the people I've wanted to meet. Um, I've meet, I've met Sophie Aldred a few times. Um, I got to meet Colin and Nicola at a convention in Kansas. Um, and Andrew Cartmel, I've actually met three times now and, and we just stop and chat. We don't even talk about Dr. Who anymore. Um, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of a really fun one that's come up is, is he actually remembers me now and will call on me when I'm not even raising my hand during a panel to ask questions. So I guess I'm a plant at this point. Um, you like one of those uh, press favorites when the president's in the, uh, you know, he always goes to his favorite interviewer. <laughs> yeah, well, it was kind of a funny thing because at uh, the Long Island convention, there there was a few points where the panel kind of hit a lull and he just pointed at me. He's like, Mike, you always have good questions. What's a question? Uh, <laughs> so I started asking him about he's doing some comic strips right now um, in the what is it? The Doctor Who Adventures magazine, which is more of the kids magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the doctor's companion is a talking horse. Yeah, because yeah. he realized it's a comic strip. So why not? And uh, that's wonderful. But yeah, so, uh, you know, I've met a few of these celebrities at these different conventions. And, um, you know, some of them are just very quick discussions. Um, I got to interview Andrew back in Kansas last year, and I've seen him a few times since then. So that was really amazing. But yeah, um, Kansas has one called Time Eddie, and they've only run two years so far. And it's still very much a growing convention. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm knocking it because it's been a positive experience. But they don't really have so much of the fan panel stuff like that. But what's neat is they only have maybe four or 500 people show up. So if you want to spend time talking to Colin Baker or whoever it may be, you have that time. Mm. Uh, you know, the guests probably at a certain point are thinking, oh, gosh, just please go away. But um, <laughs> but you get more chance to interact with the guests. Um, one of the things that's really interesting, too, about Gallifrey, one that I haven't even mentioned yet is uh, and you may have seen this reference is they have LobbyCon, right. which is to say that in the hotel where it's being held, people just hang out to the lobby all hours. You'll see people still out there 6 a.m. who are there at 1 a.m. Some of them are drinking. Some of them are just hanging out. But And sometimes you'll even have guests of the convention hanging out in the lobby with people. <laughs> do, they, do they not have rooms? Why, why are these people not <laughs> they, going home? <laughs> I, some might not. That's a good point. But, uh, but yeah, it's just one of those things that this is a big social experience. So people want to hang out in the lobby and just, and just enjoy each other's company all night. Wow. You know, I usually by about midnight cut it short because I need sleep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I definitely need sleep. But uh, but what's interesting with, like, with the Kansas one is the hotel they were at uh, didn't have a bar, didn't have any kind of after hours alcohol, anything like that. So by 9 p.m., everybody was done and the whole lobby was clear. And and I think I heard even the guests actually had someone take them to a bar <laughs> just because they were, they were not going to be at a convention without alcohol. Uh, but, you know, and Long Island has that same sort of lobby con feel to a lesser degree. Um, not as many guests, things like that. But But you do see people out there late chatting, whatever. So. And Long Island is really the one I would say is probably the number two, at least, you know, out of the three I've been to. Um, a lot of fan panels, a lot of good stuff. Um, they they have a solid range of guests, things like that. So I, I would say for people, you know, if you're on the East Coast and maybe Gallifrey doesn't work for you or you can't get tickets, take a look at Long Island, too. It's another fantastic convention. Yeah. And just on that Big Finish podcast I mentioned earlier, which was recorded at a Long Island, who... Oh, I think it was Colin Baker saying it, it's his favorite convention. So there, there's a there's a big tick for Long Island Who. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 kind of it's not at that scale of Gallifrey ones. So again, you get more times more time to to talk to guests, things like that. Um, I was just walking through the general hall and they had some of the guest tables out there. I turn around and Sophie Aldred's sitting there in the ace jacket with nobody <laughs> in line. <laughs> wow. So I got to get my greatest show in the galaxy DVD signed and uh, just chat with her for a few minutes. And I got a picture with her while I'm dressed as the seventh doctor. She's wearing the ace coat. I mean, this is again, this is you tell me 20, 30 years ago, this is going to happen. No way. Yeah. Look, I'm glad you had your initial uh, convention experience in the bathroom incident then because (laughs) this Sophie incident, I think, might have done you in if that was your first time. (laughs) That would have been very rough. You know, and, and one more thing to kind of think of, too, is. 
a lot of these conventions will try to bring in people from the new series. Um, and you know, like the Torchwood gang will do a lot of conventions, things like that. Um, on occasion they're able to get one of the new series companions, but, uh, Definitely don't set your sights on that if you're wanting to attend one of these conventions. Like the odds that you're going to meet David Tennant or Matt Smith or anyone, not too high, you know, because that would blow their whole budget. So, um, you know, a lot of it is more the classic series guests or you get the people who work behind the scenes. So um, but it's it's still amazing. And and really, for me at this point, even as much as I love meeting guests and things like that, it's it's the people I interact with. The other fans, I think, is where my heart's really at at this point. Yeah, yeah. Look, as as we start to wrap up here, what would you say has been your most memorable galley overall or perhaps the, the most single interesting galley experience you've had? Aside from crying in the bathroom? Um, oh, yeah, aside from... <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, kind of behind the curtain a little bit, I, I knew what some of these questions were going to be in advance. So this one's really tough for me to answer. Um, I, I would say that second year, last year, was really great. Um, just across the board, it was just a really fun convention. You know, it, I can't even really point to any guests or anything like that. Um, but, you know, again, it was I got to be on a panel with like Paul Cornell and uh, Deb Stanish from Verity, who I think is an amazing moderator. I have great respect for her skills. Um, so being on a panel with them and some other people was really amazing. You know, just anytime I get to chat with Andrew is is a blast. I mean, um, you know, if you haven't read his uh, his vinyl detective books yet, bl- blatant plug, but they are wonderful. Uh, nothing to do with Doctor Who, but well worth it. So it was neat seeing him. Uh, Jessica Martin, who played uh, Mags the Werewolf in Greatest Show in the Galaxy, was there. And she's a comic book artist now. Yes, that's right. She's done these kind of uh, 1930s, 1940s Hollywood books. And again, it's 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 not something that I would think of or just pick up off a shelf. But chatting with her and getting to see the artwork and everything is I, I pick them up and they're wonderful. Um, so that's maybe another neat thing is getting to see not just talk about Doctor Who or talk about, you know, remember when 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But to get to see what they're doing now is really fascinating as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, as far as a particular experience, um, you know, it's I, I really probably would point to just the friends I've made. Um, I, I think that has been the greatest part of it is just I, I have made at least half a dozen friends at the convention or been able to further friendships with people. And that's what's really been the best part. Oh, brilliant. Well, will you be there in 2018? Uh, God willing, yes. <laughs> There's, even though I just said, you know, it wasn't too tough to get tickets this last year. Um, you know, you, you'll see the panic online the day before. And uh, but yeah, definitely to Gallifrey. Um, I'm hoping to go to another convention sometime this year. Um, Sylvester's going to be at a few of them. And he's really the last one I've got to catch uh, as far as just the the guests I haven't had a chance to meet yet. So. I, I'm hoping uh, to to make it either to Kansas or to Long Island sometime later this year, but we'll just see how it goes. Got to catch them all. And on that note, thank you so much, Mike, for joining us to, to chat about Galley. It's been really interesting. It's been the deepest dive I've had into Galley and its culture. You know, I've heard about it so many times over the years and heard little stories here and there, but to actually sit down here for, for almost an hour and talk about it has been really, really interesting for me and hopefully for the listeners out there. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, if anybody has any questions about Galley, you can uh, find me at, at M.A. Solko. It's M-A-S-O-L-K-O on Twitter, and uh, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Fantastic. Thanks again, Mike. Thank you.